Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 12 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Margaret of Anjou, Chapter 1, Part 2. These were important days in the journal, not only of the bridal progress, but in the life of Margaret of Anjou, for it was her first introduction to the prince, whose rival claims to her husband's throne engendered those deadly animosities, which proved in the end fatal to them both. The entertainment received by the royal bride must have been agreeable to her as she repeated her visit. We gather from this entry that Margaret's acquaintance with the Duke of York preceded her introduction to the king, her husband. On the 20th, she proceeded from Mons to Vernon, where she slept. On the 23rd, she arrived at Rowan. There is an item of four shillings nine pence for 14 pairs of shoes bestowed by Margaret on various poor women on her journey from Mons. At Rowan she remained a week, and there two curious entries occur. The first certifies the fact that the young queen made purchase of some articles of second-hand plate, of a goldsmith of that town. The second, that her want of money was so pressing, that she was compelled to pawn diverse vessels of mock silver to the Duchess of Somerset, to raise funds for some of the expenses of her journey. Margaret left Rowan, and slept at Bochumshire Monastery, March 31st. The next day, she proceeded to pound Tom Dure. She reached Halfleet, April 3rd. There she remained several days. April 8th, a small English vessel, called the Trinity of Colchester, transported her and her suite to the port of Kittikaz, where the Cope John, or Charburg, the ship appointed for her voyage, had been long waiting her arrival. The Brecknote Computus proves a payment of five pounds, four shillings, ten pence, to the pilot attending in the Coke John, also to the purser of the same, thirteen pounds, six shillings, eight pence, price of a large cable bought by him, for the security of the said ship whilst riding at anchor near Kedekaz, and of nine pounds, seven shillings, for making conveniences in the vessel, namely, diverse chambers and cabins, and a bridge for the ingress and egress of the Lady Queen. These ships had been in commission ever since the 5th of September, 1444. Margaret's long sojourn on the continent was caused by the necessity of the king summoning a new parliament for the purpose of obtaining the needful supplies for his marriage. It met at Westminster, February 25th, 1445. The king remained seated in his chair of state, while his Chancellor Stafford, Archbishop of Canterbury, explained the cause for which Parliament was summoned, in a species of political sermon, commencing with this text. Justice and peace have kissed each other. 
He then proceeded to notify the suspension of hostilities in France, and the marriage between the king and Margaret, daughter of the king of Sicily. By which two happy events, he nothing doubted but, through God's grace, justice and peace should be firmly established throughout the realm. The parliament granted a half-fifteenth of all movable goods to the king, to defray the expenses of the late commission, for the truce with France and his marriage, and was then prorogued till the 29th of April, to allow the necessary interval for the arrival of the new queen, and the solemnization of the royal nuptials. There is a curious document in the Federa, in which the needy sovereign makes an assignment of part of his half-fifteenth, granted, but not yet raised, to a certain knight, for the purchase of his jewel of St. George, and also as security for the sum of two thousand marks, which, says Henry, our beloved knight has now lent us impressed, ready money, at the contemplation of the coming of our most best beloved wife, the queen, now into our presence. The records of the Federa, from the Pell Roll, 23rd of Henry the Sixth bear melancholy testimony to the utter destitution of the royal privy purse at this period, and the pitiable expedients to which the unfortunate sovereign was reduced, in order to meet his bridal expenses. Among other things, there is an order directing, that the remaining third part of one of the crown jewels, called the rich collar, which had already been broken and pledged, in two separate pieces, to his uncle Cardinal Beaufort, for two thousand marks, in the time, as Henry pathetically observes, of our great necessity, should be delivered to the said most worshipful father in God, and a patent made out securing to him the first two parts, and the delivery of the third. This jewel was never redeemed by the impoverished king, who was, in fact, compelled to pawn all his private jewels and household plate, to provide the equipages and other indispensable articles required, for his marriage, and the coronation of the young queen. The wars so ruthlessly carried on with France, for the third of a century, had made the English crown nearly bankrupt. Henry could, with difficulty, keep his royal state, though he was anxious that a great display should be made to welcome his bride. Poverty was the plague which pursued Margaret all her life, at her father's court, and was ready to receive her in Henry's palace. The funds necessary for her reception having been at length obtained, the royal bride embarked with her train, as previously mentioned, April 8th, and on the following day, landed at Port Chester. She was so much indisposed with the voyage, that Suffolk carried her from the boat to the shore in his arms. A terrible storm greeted Margaret of Anjou, almost as soon as she set foot on shore. But the people, notwithstanding the thunder and lightning, ran in crowds to look at her, and the men of Porchester courteously strew their streets with rushes, for her to pass over. She was conducted to a convent at Portsmouth, called God's House, where, having reposed a little, she entered the church, and there made her oblation of six shillings eight pence. The following day, Saturday the 10th, she was conveyed by water to Southampton with great state. The sum of one pound three shillings four pence was paid to seven foreign trumpeters, for playing on the decks of two Genoese galleys, as they passed our Lady Queen between Portsmouth and Southampton. Margaret was conveyed by rowing. At Southampton, as well as at Portsmouth, the young queen lodged at a religious hospital called God's House. 
Here she was seized with a dangerous cutaneous malady, from which King Henry's quaint and homely description of its symptoms, in his letter to his chancellor, appears to have been no other than the smallpox. This sickness, of his most dear and best beloved wife, the queen, is stated by Henry to be the cause why he could not keep the feast of St. George at Windsor Castle. He had been waiting some days at Southwick, to welcome his long-expected bride, and remained there in anxious suspense, during the period of her alarming illness, till she was sufficiently recovered to join him there. In the Brecknote Computus, we have the following entry of money paid to Master Francis, the physician, who had attended the queen on her journey and voyage to England, for diverse spices, confections, and powders, bought and provided by him, for making medicines for the safekeeping of the person of the said lady the queen, as well by land as by sea, by precept of the Marquess of Suffolk, at Southampton, on the tenth day of April, in the twenty-third year of the reign of the king. Three pounds, nine shillings, two pence. A very reasonable doctor's bill, our readers will allow, considering the importance of the patient. Our records bear witness of the fact that Margaret's bridal wardrobe was so scantily furnished that King Henry was under the necessity of supplying her with a ray suitable to a queen of England before she could appear publicly in that character. As soon as she arrived at Southampton, indeed, an express was forwarded to London for an English dressmaker to wait on her, as we find from the following payment. To John Pole, valet, sent from Southampton to London, by command of the Marquess of Suffolk, with three horses, for Margaret Chamberlain, tire-maker, to bring her to the presence of the Lady Queen, for diverse affairs touching the said Lady Queen. For the expenses coming and going, by gift of the Queen, one pound. The nuptials of Margaret of Anjou and Henry the Sixth were solemnized on the 22nd of April, 1445, in Titchfield Abbey. The bridal ring had been made in the preceding January, from a ring of gold, garnished with a fair ruby, which had formerly been presented to the king by his uncle, Cardinal Beaufort, with the which, he says, we were sacred on the day of our coronation at Paris, a jewel of inauspicious omen. The beautiful young queen received from one of her new subjects, on the occasion of her bridal, a present, not of a lapdog, but the more characteristic offering of a lion. And the following entry by Brecknoke specifies the costs incurred by the addition of this royal pet to the charges of the household. To John Folk and Perrin Gallaman, for the food and keeping of a lion, presented to the lady the queen at Titchfield, together with the carriage of the same lion, from thence to the Tower of London, for the expenses thereof, and of the said lion, two pounds, five shillings, three pence. Margaret had completed her fifteenth year exactly one month before her marriage with King Henry, and, notwithstanding the dissatisfaction of the nation at her want of dower, their contempt for the indigence of her father, and the prejudice created by her close connection with the royal family of France, her youth, her beauty, and noble presence, procured her an enthusiastic welcome wherever she appeared. The people pressed in crowds to gaze upon her, and all the nobility and chivalry of England wore her emblem flower, the daisy, in their caps and bonnets of state, when they came with their retainers and servants, clad in sumptuous liveries, in all the pomp and pride of feudality, to meet and welcome the royal bride on her Londonward progress. 
Drayton alludes to this picturesque compliment in the following couplet. Of either sex who doth not now delight to wear the daisy for Queen Marguerite? King Henry, in compliment to his lovely and beloved consort, caused her emblem flower to be enameled and engraved on his plate. By no one was Margaret treated with more peculiar marks of respect on her bridal progress than by the Duke of Gloucester, who, as if to atone for his opposition to her marriage with his royal nephew, came to meet her at Blackheath, with five hundred men wearing his livery and badge, to do her honor, and so conducted her to his palace at Greenwich, where she was refreshed. Great preparations had been made in London and its vicinity for the reception of the young queen. Triumphal arches were erected across the road through which she was to pass, and many costly pageants were made ready, says Fabian, of diverse old histories, to her great comfort, and that of such as came with her. On the 28th of May, Queen Margaret was met at Blackheath by an equestrian procession, consisting of the mayor, aldermen, and sheriffs of the city of London, in scarlet and the crafts of the same, all riding on horseback, in blue gowns, with embroidered sleeves and red hoods, who conveyed her with her train through Southwark, and so on to the city of London, which was then beautified with pageants of diverse histories and other shows of welcome, marvelously costly and sumptuous, of which I can name only a few. At the bridge foot toward Southwark was a pageant of peace and plenty, and at every street corner, in allusion to the text of the parliamentary sermon, two puppets, in a moving pageant, called Justice and Peace, were made to kiss each other. Noah's ship, the ark, upon the bridge, with verses in English. At Leadenhall, Madame Grace, the Chancellor of God. At the inn at Cornhill, St. Margaret. At the great conduit in Cheapside, the five wise and five foolish virgins. At the cross in the cheap, the heavenly Jerusalem, with verses. At Paul's gate, the general resurrection and judgment with verses accordingly, all made by John Lydgate. Margaret was crowned at Westminster, May 30th, with a degree of royal splendor little suited to the exhausted treasury of her enamored consort, but doubtless to the no small satisfaction of the faithful Stuart, squire, and minstrels of her father, who came to witness the coronation of their princess, and report the same in their own land. A few notices of grants, bestowed on those hungry Angevins and Italians, are to be found in the issue rolls. In addition to all the splendid pageantry, in honor of Margaret's bridal and coronation, a tournament was held in Westminster, which lasted three days, and was brilliantly attended. The lists occupied the whole space from Palace Yard to the Sanctuary. A few weeks after the coronation of Margaret of Anjou, an embassy of congratulation arrived from her uncle, the King of France, and another from her father to Henry the Sixth. July 16th, the King gave them audience at Westminster Palace, seated in a very high chair of state, called the Salette, covered with tapestry of blue diaper, the livery of Henry V. He was dressed in a long robe of vermilion cloth of gold, which swept the ground, and was attended by his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, Suffolk, and other peers. When the ambassadors delivered their credentials, the king raised his hat a little from his head, and when they had addressed their speech to him, on the blessings of peace and the love and good will borne him by his uncle of France, he again raised his hat from his head and said several times, St. John, thanks, 
great thanks to St. John. He then told them by the Marquess of Suffolk, that he did not hold them as strangers, as they belonged to the household of his uncle of France, whom, of all persons in the world, after the queen his wife, he loved the best. The following day, after the arrival of Monsieur de Pressigny, he gave them an audience in his privy chamber. The king was then dressed in a long robe of black velvet. The real object of this embassy was to extend the two years' truce into a permanent peace. They introduced the subject by great profusions of love and amity of the king of France to his nephew, and apologies for the long delay of the queen's arrival. They added, that they now came to inquire after her health, and to wish them both much joy and long-continued posterity, and that perpetual amity might be established between the kindred royalty of France and England. Henry repeated, probably translated, what was said to his nobles, with a countenance full of satisfaction, and bade Suffolk tell the ambassadors, that he had great joy in hearing news of the high and mighty king his uncle, whom he loved better than any person in the world, excepting the queen his wife, and that he desired the continuance of peace, beyond anything on earth, to which all present responded, Amen. Henry then called the ambassadors close to him, and conversed with them familiarly. Suffolk repeated that the king loved his uncle of France, the second best in the world, on which Henry exclaimed in English, St. John, yes! Extensive repairs and improvements had been made in all the royal palaces, previously to Margaret's arrival. This was very necessary, for so many years had lapsed, since a queen consort had held her state in England, that those portions of the abodes of royalty, known by the name of the queen's lodgings, were absolutely desolated and unfit for her reception, till a considerable outlay had been expended upon them. The royal residences at the Tower, Westminster, Eltham, and Sheen, in particular, were restored to their pristine splendor, in honor of the new queen. For the first two years of Margaret of Anjou's union with Henry the Sixth, Cardinal Beaufort was the supreme director of the power of the crown. King Henry, new to the delights of female society, was intoxicated with the charms, the wit, and graceful manners of his youthful bride, of whom an elegant French historian thus speaks. England had never seen a queen more worthy of a throne than Margaret of Anjou. No woman surpassed her in beauty, and few men equaled her in courage. It seemed as if she had been formed by heaven to supply to her royal husband the qualities which he required in order to become a great king. Another chronicler, quoted by Stowe, says, This woman excelled all others, as well in beauty and favor as in art and policy, and was in courage inferior to none. These brilliant characteristics were yet in the germ, when Margaret of Anjou was unfortunately called to share the throne of England, at a period of life when her judgment was immature, and the perilous endowments of wit, genius, and lively perceptiveness, were more likely to create enemies than to secure friends. She had been deeply piqued and offended at the opposition the Duke of Gloucester had made to her marriage, and, with the petulance of a spoiled child, she took every occasion of mortifying him, by a foolish display of her unbounded influence over the king, and her regard for Cardinal Beaufort and the Duke of Suffolk, his sworn foes. To Cardinal Beaufort, indeed, she was indebted for her elevation to the pride and power of royalty, and, with all the devotion of a young heart, she resigned herself wholly to his direction. 
Independently of political considerations, Cardinal Beaufort was exceedingly fond of Margaret, who was a frequent visitor at his house in Waltham Forest, where there was a state chamber, magnificently fitted up for her sole use, called the Queen's Chamber, with hangings of cloth of gold of Damascus. These the Cardinal afterwards bequeathed to Queen Margaret. The great riches of this ambitious prelate enabled him to administer, from time to time, in a very acceptable manner, to the necessities of the royal pair, and the flattering attention with which he treated the young queen so completely won her confidence, that, under his direction, the talents and fascinations of this accomplished girl became the powerful spells through which he obtained unbounded ascendancy over the counsels of his royal nephew. It was in the second year of Margaret's marriage, that the memorable Parliament of February 1447 was summoned to meet at Bury, the ministers of King Henry having business to accomplish which they dare not venture in the vicinity of the metropolis. This was the destruction of the Duke of Gloucester, the darling of the people, and the heir presumptive to the throne. Gloucester, probably with a view to counteract the queenly influence, showed an alarming inclination to make common cause with the Duke of York. This prince had been lately superseded in his office of regent of France, and supplanted by his enemy, the Duke of Somerset, Cardinal Beaufort's nephew. By some historians it has been supposed that it was to avert a coalition so perilous to the government of King Henry, that the crooked politicians of whom his cabinet was composed devised their plans for ridding themselves of their formidable opponent. The king and queen proceeded to bury with their court, and all the commonality of Suffolk were summoned to attend the king there, in their most defensible array, a proof that some danger to the royal person was apprehended. The Parliament met, February 10th, in the refectory of St. Edmund's Abbey. The session was opened, not by the king, but by his Chancellor Stafford, Archbishop of Canterbury. On the first day, business proceeded smoothly, a speaker was chosen, and an exchange of Queen Margaret's revenues of 4,666 pounds, 13 shillings, out of the customs, for certain lands and hereditaments settled on her for life, was confirmed. But on the second day of the session, all England was astonished by the arrest of the Duke of Gloucester on a charge of high treason. He was committed to close custody under a strong guard, what evidence the king had of his uncle's guilt, says Wethamsteed, we know not, but nothing could persuade him of his innocence. Seventeen days after his arrest, the Duke of Gloucester was found dead in his bed, but without any marks of violence on his person. His body was produced in both houses of Parliament, and exposed to public view for several days, but these measures failed to remove the suspicions which so sudden a death, under such circumstances, naturally excited throughout England. No actual proof, however, exists that he was murdered, and Wethamstead, a contemporary and warm partisan of Gloucester states, that he died of an illness that seized him on his arrest. So does William of Worcester, and no writer of that period attempts to implicate the Queen, as a party concerned in that transaction. Rapin, indeed, suffers his prejudices against Margaret, to betray him into the following unauthenticated assertions as to her share in the supposed murder. After stating that Henry's ministers had resolved to compass the destruction of the Duke of Gloucester, he says, The queen, who was of a bold and enterprising genius, 
was the person who first encouraged this resolution. At least, the historians insinuate as much, if they have not said it. Who these historians are, Rapin has not thought proper to inform his readers, but, in the same conclusive strain of reasoning, he proceeds to say, and, indeed, the ministry would never have ventured upon such an action without having her at their head. A responsible leader, in sooth, would a girl of Queen Margaret's age have made in a business of that kind? If, indeed, Cardinal Beaufort, who had treasured up the accumulated rancors of six and twenty years of unquenchable hatred against Gloucester, and before she was born, had threatened to decide their deadly quarrel by setting England on a field, would have asked her sanction for wreaking his long-cherished vengeance on his adversary. Did Rapin remember that these ministers, of whom Cardinal Beaufort was the master spirit, were the same people, who, three years before Margaret of Anjou set her foot in England, had devised and successfully carried into effect the subtlest plot that was ever imagined against the Duchess of Gloucester? And could they have required the prompting and advice of a girl of seventeen, to work out their scheme of vengeance on the duke, of which that blow was the sure prelude? There can be little doubt that the destruction of the Duke of Gloucester would have been accomplished if Margaret of Anjou had never entered this country, and it is scarcely probable that she was even entrusted with so important a secret, since her greatest misfortunes were caused by unguarded manifestations of her prejudices and partialities, for which she is greatly condemned by Philip de Comines, her contemporary. Within eight weeks after the death of Gloucester, Cardinal Beaufort was summoned to his great account, leaving the court to struggle with the storm he had conjured up, bereft of the support of his talents, his experience, and his all-powerful wealth. King Henry, absorbed in his studies and heavenward contemplations, shrank from the toils and cares of empire, and certainly evinced more interest in the prosperity and regulations of his newly founded college at Eton, than in the government of his kingdom. And Margaret, then only just entering her eighteenth year, found the executive power of the crown of England left to her sole direction. Alas, for any female on whom so fearful a responsibility devolves, at such a tender and unreflective age, ere the difficult lessons of self-government have been learned, or the warm confiding impulses of the youthful heart have been taught the necessity of restraint and concealment. Margaret of Anjou had, doubtless, acted with the best intentions, when, on her first arrival in England, instead of allying herself with foreign advisers or female favorites, she resigned herself to the guidance of her royal husband's favorite uncle and counselor, a man of Cardinal Beaufort's venerable years and reputation for wisdom. At his death, she naturally, unacquainted as she was with the manners, custom, and prejudices of her consort's subjects, continued her confidence in the cabinet he had formed, at the head of which was her first English friend and acquaintance, the Duke of Suffolk. Shakespeare has greatly misled his readers in regard to the liaison between this unpopular minister and Margaret of Anjou, by representing her first as his prisoner, and, after her marriage with the king, as his paramour. The one she certainly never was, and the great disparity in their ages renders the other very unlikely. Suffolk, at the period when his acquaintance with the royal beauty, then just fourteen, commenced at her father's court, far from being the gallant gay Lothario that poetry and romance has portrayed, 
was a gray-haired soldier statesman who had served thirty-four years in the french campaigns before he became a member of henry the sixth cabinet he must therefore have been on the shady side of fifty when he acted as his sovereign's proxy at the nuptials of margaret of anjou suffolk be it remembered too was a married man devotedly attached to his wife who held the principal place of honor about the person of the queen and even after his death his duchess continued to retain her post and influence in the court of margaret where she appears to have been almost as unpopular as her unfortunate lord for her name stands the second in the list of those whom the parliament in fourteen fifty one petitioned the king to banish from his household and realm a request that was not complied with by the sovereign as the queen would not consent to be deprived of the company and services of her first english friend suffolk was after all most probably indebted to his duchess for the credit he enjoyed with their royal mistress it was no enviable season for queen margaret and the unpopular minister by whom her marriage had been negotiated when the expiration of the truce with france left the government of her royal husband the alternative of fulfilling the conditions of the treaty on which it was based or renewing the war without the means of supporting the honor of england not even that consummate politician cardinal beaufort had ventured to declare to the parliament the secret article by which maine the key of normandy was to be restored to the house of anjou and now the responsibility of that article fell on suffolk and the queen most unfortunate it was for margaret that her own family were the parties who received the benefits of these sacrifices for which her misjudging interference in the government at this crisis rendered her accountable though they had been solemnly guaranteed by king henry and his council at the treaty of tours before she was even affianced to him bellicose as the character of margaret of anjou became in after years when the stormy temper of the times and the nature of the circumstances with which she had to contend kindled all the energies of her spirit into amazonian fierceness not even her meek and saintly consort labored more earnestly at this period than herself to preserve that peace of which her own strong sense taught her england was in such need during their brief interval that preceded the ruinous war into which the government of england was soon after forced margaret commenced the foundation of queen's college cambridge this college was dedicated to the honor of almighty god by the royal foundress and devoted by her to the increase of learning and virtue under the tutelary auspices of saint margaret her patroness and saint bernard the first stone was laid by sir john afterwards lord wenlock in behalf of and as deputy for queen margaret with this inscription in latin the lord shall be a refuge to our sovereign lady queen margaret and this stone shall be for a token of the same margaret also sought to turn the attention of the people to manufactories in woolen and silk but the temper of the time suited not the calm tenor of peaceful employments a spirit of adventurous enterprise had been nourished during the french wars and from the princes of the blood royal to the peasantry there was a thirsting for fighting fields and a covetous desire of appropriating the spoils of plundered towns and castles pervading all classes 
the very misery of the people of england rendered them combative and eager to exchange the monotony of reluctant and ill-paid labor for the excitement of war it was no easy matter to convert the men who had fought at agincourt or their sons into tillers of the soil or weavers of woolen cloths as for the silk manufacturers they were chiefly carried on by a company of females who went by the name of the silk women and were regarded with jealous displeasure by the london mercers who petitioned the king against the establishment of this industrious sisterhood as an infringement on their manly rights and privileges in the commencement of the year fourteen forty nine charles the seventh renewed hostilities with england and in the course of two years reconquered most of the towns in normandy the details of the losses and disasters of the english forces under the command of the duke of somerset belong rather to the general history than to the memoirs of queen margaret although they had a fatal influence on her fortunes by rendering her an object of suspicion and ill-will to the nation causing the name of frenchwoman to be applied to her as a term of reproach by those who well knew the art of applying to the prejudices and exciting the passions of the vulgar against her the partisans of the duke of york failed not to attribute all the losses in france and normandy to the misgovernment of the queen insinuating that the king was fitter for a cloister than a throne and had in a manner deposed himself by leaving the affairs of his kingdom in the hands of a woman who merely used his name to conceal her usurpation since according to the laws of england a queen consort hath no power but title only queen margaret willing to procure the absence of the duke of york at any price blindly increased his political power by investing him with the government of ireland york had left a strong party in england at the head of which were those powerful nobles richard neville earl of salisbury and his son the earl of warwick the brother and nephew of his duchess these were the great political opponents of the queen whom they ventured not politically to attack otherwise than by directing the voice of the people against the measures of the court and attributing the disastrous state of the country to the treasonable practices of her favorite minister suffolk boldly stood up in the house of lords and complained that he had been traduced by public report and demanded of his enemies if they had ought to lay to his charge that they should specify his crimes he averted to the services his family and himself had performed for their country and stated that his father and three of his brethren had been slain in france that he had himself served in the wars thirty-four years and being but a knight when he was taken prisoner had paid twenty thousand crowns for his ransom that he had been of the order of the garter thirty years and a counsellor of the king fifteen years and had been seventeen years in the wars without return home and asking god's mercy as he had been true to the king and realm he required his purgation end of section twelve Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.